We turn in God's inspired word this morning to Ezekiel chapter 3. The prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 3. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou finest. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of an hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of an hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant, harder than flint, have I made thy forehead. Fear them not. Neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto thee, receive in thine heart, and hear with thine ears, and go get thee to them of the captivity, unto the children of thy people, and speak unto them, and tell them, Thus saith the Lord God, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. Then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. I heard also the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touch one another, and the noise of the wheels over against them, and the noise of a great rushing. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then came I to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv, and that dwelt by the river of Kibar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, 
and he turn not away from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also thou hast delivered thy soul. So far we read from Ezekiel chapter 3. We now turn to Psalm 141. Psalm 141. Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. For yet my prayer shall be in their calamities. When their judges are overthrown in stony places, they shall hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth as when one cutteth and cleaveth wood upon the earth. But mine eyes are unto thee, O Lord, O God the Lord, in thee is my trust. Leave not my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, whilst that I withal escape. Notice Especially verse 5, let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. On the basis of those passages and others, we give our attention this morning to the instruction of Lord's Day 31 of our Heidelberg Catechism. I remind you that the end of Lord's Day 30 introduced the subject that we consider this morning. And it did so by that question, question 82, are they also be, to be admitted to this supper, the Lord's Supper, who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? 
And the answer was no, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. And now we enter the subject of the keys of the kingdom. Lord's Day 31. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven open and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand this morning before a critically important truth. Critically important from a practical point of view, that of the keys of the kingdom. Lord's Day 31 sets before us the truth of Christian discipline. It unfolds that truth from Scripture as it considers both the contents of the preaching as well as as the exercise of Christian discipline among the members of the church and by the church formally through her God-appointed elders. This is a Lord's Day that is often considered at length, treating questions and question and answer 85 separately from the first two questions and answers. I'm taking, I'm taking this Lord's Day as one today, 
You undoubtedly have had before very extensive and careful treatment of these subjects. And although there are those who don't want to hear these things and those who refuse to lay hold of these as necessary for us, there is not one here who has not heard these truths explained from Holy Scripture in depth. As with every truth of Scripture, we have the inescapable calling humbly to submit to the teachings of God's holy word. No one escapes that obligation. Those who reject any of the teachings of God's word, including those who those teachings that pertain to God's holiness and the exercise of Christian discipline do so to the peril of their own souls. And because we take this Lord's Day as one today, I point out that there are really two aspects to the treatment of Lord's Day 31. The first concerns the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Now we considered the preaching not too long ago in the treatment of Lord's Day 25. There we saw the preaching as the chief means of grace. That means by which Christ speaks to his people who hear his voice and follow him. It's by that preaching of the word as the power of God unto salvation that Christ gathers his own. That, but the emphasis here in Lord's Day 31 is different. Here we are taught what is to characterize that preaching as far as its contents are concerned. And those contents are closely related to the purpose of Whereunto God sends forth that preaching. That purpose is twofold. The preaching of the gospel, as Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, always serves as a sweet savor unto God. God is pleased with what he accomplishes by his spirit in the preaching of his word. He's pleased not only with how that preaching works in the salvation of those who belong to Christ by his eternal decree of election, but God is pleased with that preaching in that it also affects what we view as something negative, as it works among those who perish. In the one being saved, the preaching is a sweet savor of life unto life, but it is also, that same preaching is also a sweet savor unto God of death unto death. And the contents of faithful preaching, which God demands of all those who minister his word, serves that purpose, both of saving and of hardening. That's explained especially in question and answer 84 of Lord's Day 31. The second aspect of this Lord's Day 
concerns the biblical teaching of Christian discipline. And that's really a further explanation of what is discussed in, Lord's Day, in question and answer 84. The point of the Lord's Day, which speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, is that the chief means of discipline in the church comes exactly by the preaching of the word. That's the rod that God uses every week for each one of us to lead us in the way everlasting. But as scripture teaches, there are times when the more personal application of God's word is necessary, when admonitions must be directed with more specific application than what comes through the preaching, and when calls to repentance must be directed personally to the sinner caught in the snares of Satan's devices. So the instructors in our catechism call our attention to the necessary exercise of discipline for God's glory for the salvation of the penitent sinner and for the protection of Christ's church. And in doing so, the catechism brings to a close the section on our deliverance or redemption. It's a striking way to conclude this section, isn't it? Also, in this Lord's Day, we must understand the full Christ is the central figure. He is set before us in all his fullness. He is the rock of salvation, but he is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The same Christ is salvation to all who believe but also the executioner of God's justice to those who reject him in unbelief. And therefore, when the servants of Christ go forth, according to his command, to proclaim the gospel of salvation, they wield, as it were, his double-edged sword, or more accurately, according to the figure that we consider this morning, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, opening and locking. That's the biblical truth set before us this morning, the fullness of Christ in saving and protecting his church. So we turn to this truth set forth in Lord's Day 31 under the theme, the keys of the kingdom. We notice, first of all, the place of these keys, Secondly, the key, the preaching as a key, and finally, the key of Christian discipline. I begin by calling your attention to the place of these keys and what the Catechism is referring to by the keys of the kingdom. More specifically, the reference here is to the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So we need, first of all, to understand what is meant by the reference to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is God's domain. It's the kingdom, therefore, which has its determination in heaven and its source from heaven, 
that is from God alone. He designed it. It serves his purpose. Heaven is the culmination of this kingdom in its full realization and revelation. But the kingdom itself is not heaven. And we mustn't be misled by those who present heaven as the kingdom where St. Peter is the gatekeeper. Rather, the perspective of this expression is that the kingdom of heaven, sometimes referred to in scripture as the kingdom of God, has been established by Christ in the hearts of his people. It's built upon his righteousness. And according to God's sovereign purpose, that kingdom has taken root in the earth and particularly in the church which Christ has called and gathered. The, mar the members of the church are citizens of the kingdom whose citizenship is indeed in heaven. The marks of, this, of their citizenship are spiritual marks. And by their life in the midst of this world, they acknowledge the rule of Christ over all things. So the kingdom of heaven becomes manifest in the earth as the church institute. So we read in Matthew 16, when Jesus heard the confession of faith expressed by Peter on behalf of the disciples, Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that is, the rock of Peter's confession, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So in this kingdom, Christ rules. And he rules according to his appointment through those office bearers he calls and to whom he entrusts the keys of the kingdom. To speak of the keys of the kingdom is clearly to use a figure of speech. So what is meant by this figure? A key, you realize, has a double function. It locks or it unlocks the door. What this figure conveys, therefore, is the fact that the kingdom of heaven is a limited or restricted territory. It's a territory restricted by doors and locks. That's the figure. There are walls and gates and locks to this kingdom. And Christ has appointed watchmen on Zion's walls, as we read in Ezekiel 3, and entrusted them with the keys to the gate. Those walls and gates and locks are necessary. They are necessary in order that the kingdom of heaven 
be preserved from the attacks of the enemy. To use the language in Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom are necessary in order that the gates of hell do not prevail against the church. For this kingdom over which Christ is king are, is presently found in the midst of this world where Satan is prince. And while the while in heaven the saints are and the church shall be safe from this evil one, here the battle wages. The battle continues and rages on. It isn't physical violence that threatens the church, though it can. But this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's that spiritual violence that would threaten her, that would undermine her foundations and seek to destroy her principles. There are unholy powers and unholy people that would desecrate her, as well as disorderly members that would stir up discord and strife. And in order, therefore, that the covenant be not profaned and God's people be preserved in their faith, in order that the church doesn't become the world and the holy mingle with the unholy, God has entrusted watchmen to guard the walls of Zion and by their keys to exclude all that is unholy while protecting those who humbly fear the Lord. Now we must understand that in the final analysis, Christ is the one who exercises the keys of the kingdom. Christ alone has the power to do that. And that's evident from Revelation 1, verse 18, where the exalted Christ says... I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. And to confirm that, he says in Revelation 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The exalted Christ has that authority. At the same time, as we heard in Ezekiel 3 and from the reference in Matthew 16, and as is confirmed in Matthew 18, verses 17 and 18, it has pleased the Lord to entrust the church with the execution of that key power in his name. He exercises his power in the church through the office bearers by the Spirit's use of the word. He exercises that key power in the church, in the whole church, 
The key power is exercised by Christ in the church through his office bearers, those who faithfully minister his word in the calling that God has given them. Now the catechism points first to the preaching as a key power. Striking it is that the power of the church is symbolized by a key. The church doesn't wield the same power, in other words, that the state executes. Their power is represented by the sword. The state it possesses the power to enforce, to compel obedience. They can punish the breaking of the law by fines, by imprisonment, or even death. But the power of the church is not characterized by the sword. Rather, the power of Christ as exercised by the church is the spiritual power of the word. But don't underestimate the power of that word. There are many in our day who easily brush off the church and the labors of her office bearers. They are instructed by the preaching and in some cases by personal visits and they change their ways not at all, continuing to walk contrary to the word of God. It seems to them that the church has no power or what power it has pales in comparison to what the world views as power. After all, what's compelling about a person telling me something? What's the power in a word? So the preacher and the elders tell me to do something. What's that to me? I don't have to listen to them. But the scriptures tell us that the word brought by Christ's servants bear the authority of Christ himself. And how tremendous is the power of that word. For to reject it, to disobey it, is to bring one under the condemnation of Christ. By that word, souls are bound and hardened, or they are loosed and forgiven. It's either or. The word never returns void. So Jesus said to the church in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, repeating what he had said to Peter in Matthew 16, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let no one deceive himself into thinking they can put me out of the church, but they can never banish me from the kingdom. 
when the church is faithful in exercising the key power of Christ by his word, that's exactly the power of his word. And to clarify that, Jesus instructed his disciples again after his resurrection, John 20, verses 22 and 23, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. The key power of the word of God is exactly to forgive sin or to chain one to his sins even to everlasting damnation. So the question is asked by our catechism. How? How is the preaching, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the Holy Gospel? And the answer to that question begins with that which is the most beautiful aspect of gospel preaching, the opening of the kingdom to all who believe. According to the command of Christ, the preaching of the gospel declares and testifies to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. What a blessed gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ has opened the door to heaven for you and for me and for all who believe. All our sins are forgiven. That's not a pious wish. It's not an ideal of which we can only dream. This is a glorious reality not can be forgiven, not might be forgiven. Those sins are forgiven, and Christ himself declares it. These glad tidings are proclaimed to all and every believer. It's a declaration, therefore, as, as broad as possible. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28. And therefore, when this word is preached to me, I must act as if the Lord speaks to me personally, as if he stood before me in his very person. And notice this forgiveness of sins is ours, we are told, whenever we receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith. That matter of true faith we consider back in Lord's Day 7. That true faith, as this Lord's Day implies, is evident in our lives. But this does not mean 
that the reality of our forgiveness and reconciliation stands or falls with our fluctuating faith. We frequently pray, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And we may know that our forgiveness and reconciliation is not dependent upon us, but upon him alone who makes it forever sure. We rest in the testimony of our Savior. But what is emphasized here is the fact that as often as that gospel of grace is preached to us, even from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, and as often as we stumble into God's house after a week of toil and, and hear that gospel with ears of faith, our strength is renewed and the clouds of darkness are dissipated, they're swept away, and we can once again with renewed zeal and strength rejoice in the God of our salvation. That, I say, is the most beautiful aspect, the blessed side of the gospel preaching which God sends to us and which he gives to his people wherever his word is preached in truth. But there is another side to gospel preaching, and we mustn't forget it. And that other side to gospel preaching must also be very evident in the contents of that preaching. Namely, that the word of God, the holy gospel, also shuts and excludes from the kingdom of heaven. To unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that same preaching declares and testifies that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted. According to which testimony of the gospel, God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. It declares to them, therefore, that heaven is closed to them. That very same preaching that sets forth life for those who believe sets forth condemnation and death for those who refuse to turn from their evil ways. And this aspect of the preaching and the ministry of the word by the elders of the church may not be toned down and may not be skirted as Ezekiel 3 made very clear. We see a clear example of this in Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi 3 verse 1, after two chapters of sharp admonitions and the pronouncements of judgment upon impenitent Israel, Malachi proclaims the beautiful promise of deliverance for the true people of God. 
But the way that he did that was very striking. He set forth the promise of the coming of Christ with these words. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. And behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. What a blessed promise to the elect remnant who indeed had been seeking the messenger of the covenant, who delighted yet in his word. But don't forget, that elect remnant, those with true faith, were but a very tiny remnant of those to whom Malachi preached. And therefore, when you consider the powerful rebukes of the previous chapter, you see that this very word of promise to the elect remnant is a word of condemnation to the unbelieving and impenitent among them. For there's a striking irony set forth in this verse when Malachi says, the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. For the true people of God, that was true. But for most of Israel to whom Malachi preached, what should have characterized them didn't at all. They were not seeking him. They certainly were not delighting in him. Though they claim to do those things, their very lives, contrary to God's word, proved quite the opposite to be true. So by these words, Malachi is also rebuking those carnal-minded Israelites. For them the Lord will suddenly come, but he will come in judgment. And they will be unprepared. When you read this 84th question and answer of our Heidelberg Catechism, and we do well, especially preachers, to read this often, you will find here a rather extensive description of what the contents of faithful preaching must be. Preaching is the ministry of the key power, opening and closing the kingdom of heaven, and making clear to all who hear, so that God's people are saved and no one is left without excuse. A sermon, therefore, is not merely a word of edification. And it certainly is not a lecture in doctrine. It is the very word of God to each and every one personally. That word comes from the highest authority. It's not the mere speech of a man. 
It establishes the forgiveness of sins in the hearts of those who receive that word in true faith. And it retains the sins of those who reject it. If there is one fruit, therefore, that we ought to see in ourselves by means of the preaching, it's the fruit of repentance, daily repentance. How easy it is, because God's word is ministered through weak and sinful men, to fall into the sin of hearing preaching, hearing sermons, only in order to judge them. To agree with or condemn without repenting. How easy it is to hear with the ears of a critic expressing wholehearted intellectual agreement with the doctrine that's preached or bitter enmity toward that which was spoken while refusing to hear with the ears of a Lydia whose heart the Lord opened so that she heeded what was spoken by Paul from every sermon preached. Every hearer thereof should go home either with re a reinforced and awe-filled realization of Christ having taken our terrible sins upon himself or with the unsettled knowledge the wrath of God abides upon me and I must repent even today for that very preaching is the key exercised by Christ himself opening and closing the kingdom of heaven. If that preaching works no positive change and no fruits of thankfulness in our lives, we may be sure that it is working nonetheless, bringing us under wrath and condemnation so long as we are unconverted. Oh yes, there is hope. That's why the word calls us to repent and declares that the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turns from his evil ways and lives. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? But besides the preaching... As a key of the kingdom, God has given his church another key, the key of Christian discipline. The preaching of the word, as this Lord's Day points out, is really already the exercise of discipline in the church. It's the discipline under which each one of us comes from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, calling us to repentance, showing us the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus, and though there may be many whose sins remain hidden, 
There's none that escapes that discipline of the word of God that comes by preaching. But there are those who hear that preaching and whose lives openly show that they walk in disobedience to that word. And when that disobedience is known, there the word of God not only, but the honor of God himself must be vindicated by the exercise of Christian discipline. That's necessary for the well-being of the church, for the sanctity of God's covenant, and if it so pleases God, for the salvation of the sinner. So the question is asked, how is the kingdom of heaven shut and open by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith, and will not, after having been often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors or wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereunto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. And when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church. Take note of this. This Lord's Day doesn't speak of those who are overcome by evil and fall into sin and who consequently repent of that sin and turn from it. From that point of view, there's none righteous. And that's why in the consciousness of our own weaknesses and fall, repeated falls into sin, we approach in humility the brother or sister walking in sin in the attempt to take them with us to the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But this Lord's Day speaks of those who maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent with the name Christian that is contrary to God's word. He who falls into sin and is crushed by the true sorrow of repentance is not the object of discipline. It may be sometimes necessary that the sacraments be denied such persons for a time because the church must know that there's not only outward sorrow but a turning from the sin or to use the expression of the catechism that they show real amendment. That's necessary because the only judgment that can be made by the church is that of the fruits of repentance. But the purpose of discipline is to arouse sorrow and repentance. 
And when that has been accomplished, there can be no more exercise of discipline. It isn't necessary. Discipline is not to punish. Discipline is to save and to bring a proper reconciliation. So what makes a sinner the object of continued discipline by the church is not the severity of the evil committed, but its impenitence. A continued walk in the sin. There are different steps in Christian discipline to which your attention has been called at length in times past. Only when it's been evident that there is no turning, when the sinner is obstinate in his rejection of the word as applied to him, there is and must be exclusion from the fellowship of the church, which exclusion is recognized by God himself as exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. And let's understand, it's not that the sinner is harshly put outside the kingdom. By that exclusion, the church is made, has made the declaration, the sinner has put himself or herself outside the fellowship of Christ. The turning of the key, so to speak, simply locks the door. Even then, however, the last word has not been spoken. The way is always left open for return. Because even this excommunication out of the church has as its goal and purpose the salvation of the wayward brother or sister. The church, therefore, finds the highest expression of grace in the sinner who repents and returns to the fellowship of the church. Then the keys again open the door and receive with rejoicing that fellow member of Christ's merciful embrace. Today in closing, I want to look at this key of Christian discipline from the perspective of what is to be our attitude toward the exercise of this key. And in this connection, I call your attention to that passage that we read earlier, Psalm 141 and verse 5. There we see the man of God lifting up an amazing petition. Only we have to see the context in order to grasp the significance. The psalmist prays in verses 3 and 4, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. How terrible is the sin of gossip and backbiting and slander which are sometimes found acceptable as a matter of Christian concern. That terrible sin of talk is the first thing the psalmist mentions because nothing is a greater hindrance to true worship 
and nothing does greater damage to the cause of Christ. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that do work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. In other words, the psalmist reckons with the sinfulness of his own nature, you see. He doesn't overestimate his own piety. He understands his own nature is so depraved that he must constantly plead that Jehovah spares him from falling into sin. And that must be our own plea too, beloved. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, writes the apostle to the church at Corinth. But in recognition of his own weakness and his own inclination to sin, the psalmist prays an amazing petition, one that we must make our own. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil which shall not break mine head. Let's understand when scripture speaks of the righteous, Speaking, first of all, of Christ, isn't it? And then those who are in Christ, in the office of believer. When a brother or sister in Christ, therefore, or the elders of the church, for that matter, come to us with the word of God and show us our sin, we must take this attitude. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break mine head. The prayer, therefore, that must be upon our lips is that God gives us grace not only to receive rebuke, but to be thankful for it. Our wicked nature would think of rebuke as poison rather than an excellent oil. But the psalmist, knowing what the word of God teaches concerning these things, prays that he might receive such reproof as a kindness. We are to look at it as covenantal mercy. The righteous who so come to us have one thing in mind. That is that we be blessed and partake of the blessings of the covenant. That we experience the joys of God's covenant fellowship, that which we cannot enjoy when we are ensnared in sin. In our sin, we exactly twist this petition around. And we like to think that in mercy, they leave us alone, not rebuke us. But this is exactly the way of the one who loves us. Young people think this of your parents when they have to rebuke you. Those who love us cannot let us walk in sin and act as if nothing is wrong. 
So we must receive their instruction, their smiting, their reproofs. The Proverbs emphasize that in many texts. Points to the spiritual poverty and death that belong to those who refuse instruction and reproof while teaching us that those who receive reproof are wise. Chapter 15 alone in the book of Proverbs emphasizes this very truth in several verses. And the chapter concludes with these words. He's a, he that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul. But he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. So Christian discipline, whether by the preaching of the word or by the more personal administration by the church, is compared by the psalmist in Psalm 141 verse 5 as an excellent oil. That's what reproof does to our soul. It heals us by restoring us in the way of repentance to the fellowship of Christ. It protects us, keeping us from continuing to walk in the way of sin. And then such oil is also a symbol of joy and gladness. With healing comes joy. Oh, it might take some time. If you've ever experienced badly chapped hands, dried hands, when you first apply oil or lotion, you might find it painful. But as it soaks in and takes effect, it brings healing and removes the pain. Thus that oil becomes the oil of gladness. And the Lord once again causes us to come to his table and to enjoy the heavenly nourishment of his word and the fellowship of his love. It takes wisdom and grace to pray this prayer. Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. May that be our prayer and our attitude as we stand before the keys of the kingdom. Amen. Father, we give thanks to thee for thy word and the wonder of thy grace in working in our hearts true repentance and faith. Strengthen that in us. Draw us unto thee and abide with us now in the rest of this day as we meditate upon thy word and as we look forward to returning to thy house this evening. For Jesus' sake, amen.